welcome to another thrilling adventure of Superman. I am Michael Bradley, your host, as we explore through the history and development of Superman via his Golden Age adventures in comics, radio, and film. I want to welcome you all back and thank you for joining me again. The big news for this episode, as you've no doubt already noticed, or at least I hope you've noticed anyway, is a vast improvement in the audio quality thanks to a new headset mic that I picked up. Until now, I've just been using the built-in microphone on my computer, which actually didn't sound too bad. I was able to jimmy my computer desk around and make a little makeshift recording studio to cut back on the echoing, as well as do a little enhancing of the audio in GarageBand to suppress some of the background noise. And both of those helped, but it, it wasn't quite what I needed for a decent-sounding podcast. Thankfully, not long after I released the first episode of the show... I happened to get into a discussion with Chris Honeywell, co-host of the Two True Freaks podcast, and the subject came up that I had a show as well. He listened to the first episode, and he gave me a few comments, most of all that I needed a new mic, and I asked him if he had any recommendations, so he sent me some links. I looked over the information that Chris sent me and ended up getting this one. It's a Logitech headset, and I wound up getting a really good deal on it because When I went to buy it, Amazon had it listed for a significant discount, which actually made it cheaper than the lower-end model, so I snapped that up like lightning. I haven't had a significant amount of time to do a lot of testing with it, so I hope you'll bear with me as I fine-tune it with the software, but even with the little testing that I have done, I can already tell that it's a significant improvement in the audio quality already. But anyway, I want to give a huge thanks to Chris for his help and the recommendations as well as the feedback he gave on the early show, or the early episode of the show, I knew next to nothing about what to look for in a decent microphone, so having his advice was invaluable. For several months, I have been listening through back episodes of the Two True Freaks family of shows, and I've really enjoyed quite a number of them. If you've not heard of them, you can find them at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. There is the main Two True Freaks show, which discusses comics, Star Trek, Star Wars, movies, soundtracks, Disney's, and a whole lot more. There are also other shows that have sprouted from the Two True Freaks family, including Back to the Bins and Tales of the JSA, both of which are great shows, as well as several others. So be sure to head on over to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and check out all the shows that Chris, Scott Gardner, and the rest of the guys put out. As for this show... This is episode 8, and this time out we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 8. Before that, though, I have got another iTunes review. I mentioned last episode that I got one from Charlie Niemeyer, host of Superman in the Bronze Age. I didn't get to read it on the air then, so I'm going to do it right now, before I read the new one. And Charlie wrote, Not only does Michael review all of the Golden Age adventures of Superman, but he also does his research to help the listener understand the possible influences of the creators. Overall, a well-thought-out and fun podcast. The other was from John M. Wilson, who hosts the Golden Age Superman podcast that I mentioned a couple times. He also serves as co-host of Amazing Spider-Man Classics and Teenage Wasteland and Ultimate Spider-Man podcast. And John wrote, Michael makes a great show. This is a resource that takes you through the Golden Age adventures of the Man of Steel, adding both historical context and an understanding of how the stories work in the mythology of Superman. I always look forward to Michael's perspective on the issues after I read the books for my own 
for my own Golden Age Superman podcast. Keep up the good work, sir. I want to thank John and Charlie for their comments. They, they really do mean a lot. Not just because it's hearing from someone who enjoys the show, but hearing it from guys that put out the quality podcast that John and Charlie do, that means I've got to be doing something right. So I want to thank you guys once more for the, for the reviews. And for the listeners, be sure to check out Charlie's Superman in the Bronze Age, as well as John's Spider-Man shows and Golden Age Superman. I've not had opportunity to listen to John's Superman podcast, but I look forward to doing so soon. And links to all three shows can be found in the side rail at greatcrypton.com. Alright, so like I said, this episode we are going to be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 8. This issue's cover features a colonial soldier locked in hand-to-hand combat with a very stereotypical looking Indian warrior. The art was by Fred Gardner, and it was his very first cover for the company, though he had been working for the company for months as writer and artist of the Zaytara and Pet Morgan strips in Action Comics, as well as artist on the Speed Saunders story in Detective Comics with writer Gardner Fox. Incidentally, it's Fox that will be the one to take over as writer on the Zaytara strip when Gardner leaves the company in late 1940. I think this is an okay cover, but... I'm kind of ambivalent about it. It's well drawn. Gardner is a great artist and it's nicely colored. And I think it would work great as an opening splash page, but as the cover of the book, I don't think it's quite strong enough. It's better than the cover to issue number four, I think it was, the one of the Canadian Mountie. I mean, at least you can tell what's going on here, but it's just not the strongest cover. While the cover doesn't feature Superman, it is notable for being the last Action Comics cover, at least for a very, very, very long time, that makes no reference to Superman. While there are still several covers to come that don't feature Superman as their focus, beginning with the next issue, they will at least mention via text or an inset cover image that the Superman strip is in the book. And I think that shows rather plainly how quickly the character's popularity took off, because until now, no character had received so much consistent attention on covers. This book, which had a January 1939 cover date, was released sometime around December 6, 1938, and it's the last Superman book that was released in 1938. It was a standard 64-page issue and had a 10-cent cover price. And on the subject of, of prices, I mentioned back in Episode 6 that per the indicia, 12-issue subscriptions for Action Comics actually cost more than buying the issues directly off the stands. I found that odd because I couldn't believe they got many subscriptions with that sort of pricing structure. Well, in this issue, the 12-issue subscription rate drops $0.30 to $1.20. I'm going to keep an eye on this, but at least now the price of subscribing is equal to that of buying straight off the stands. The Superman story in this issue has been given a couple different titles. The first, Superman in the Slums, was used both times the story was reprinted. The other comes from the Action Comics number 8 entry in the Grand Comics database, and that is Gimpy the Fence, but I don't know the index's source for that title. The story was written by Jerome Siegel and drawn by Joe Schuster. Uh, Vin Sullivan gets the editor's credit again, of course, and the GCD again gives credit to Paul Loretta for lettering and possible inking work. The story's half-page opening splash shows Superman hurtling over a huge, moving bus. 
It's the big double-decker open-top bus that you see in big tourism cities. The people inside the bus are enthusiastically cheering him on, and the city skyline is in the background, and the Superman logo type stretches pretty dy pretty dynamically across the top, and it, it all comes together for a nice eye-catching image. The opening text gets a reworking this time out as well. This issue it reads, Leaping over towering buildings, rending steel in his bare hands, lifting incredible weights high overhead, impervious to bullets because of an unbelievably tough skin, racing at a speed hitherto unwitnessed by mortal eyes. These are the miraculous feats of strength which assist Superman in his one-man battle against the forces of evil and oppression. That's quite a bit wordier than previous incarnations, but it flows a little smoother than the one from last issue. Still, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue, and I have a feeling that might be at least part of the reason that Siegel kept changing the intro every issue at the beginning. Eventually they will settle on one, but I can't help but wonder if Siegel wasn't trying out forms of on, on the introduction, trying to strike exactly the perfect note. Or it could just be he was trying to mix things up, because a lot of these introductions will get reused on future stories. Either way, this particular introduction also reminds me of something I should have stressed a few episodes ago, and that is, at this point, Superman's powers are all not only natural, but strength-based. He's not flying yet, but leaping, due to his powerful leg muscles. He's bending steel, throwing cars, and deflecting bullets, obviously all feats of strength. And even his speed, which hasn't been used a lot, but has been re referenced, could be attributed to strength. And this goes back, if you recall, to the one-page origin in Action Comics number 1 that described the residence of Superman's native planet, still having not received a name in print, as having physical structures highly evolved millions of years past our own. He's not a solar battery or benefiting off the differences in gravity, he's just highly evolved in comparison to humans. The Superman, as so far written by Siegel, hasn't flown or demonstrated heat vision or x-ray vision or any of the other extrasensory powers classically attributed to Superman. Something pops up in this story, and we'll get to it in just a minute, that plays against this, but what I'm trying, trying to stress here is that to this point, all of Superman's powers are strength-based and inherent in his nature, meaning that he would have the same abilities regardless of where he was, whether it was Earth or the Moon or another planet entirely. Alright, so our story begins in a session of ye old juvenile court, where a young Frankie Murillo is getting read the riot act by a judge concerning charges of assault and battery that have been leveled against him. Frankie says he has nothing to say about the charges, except that if the guy he tried to rob would have handed over his money quietly, he wouldn't have hit him so hard. Nice kid. So, the judge starts to hand down a sentence when Frankie's mother cries out to the judge, pleading the judge to be merciful. She says it's not Frankie's fault that he's like he is, she explains that like the other boys in the neighborhood, he's resentful and underprivileged, and had he only been raised in a better environment, he would be a different person. Spectators in the courtroom watch on. Among them is ace reporter Clark Kent, who thinks to himself that the mother is right, but that her plea will likely fall on deaf ears. Also among the spectators are four young juveniles, Box Ears, Pinky, Nick, and a fourth one who Jerry Siegel never got around to naming, so we're just going to call him Dude. The four boys, all members of Frankie's gang, chat amongst themselves about what the judge is going to do. 
Soon, though, the judge hands down a verdict of guilty. 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 And although he's not sentenced to the Phantom Zone, he is given two years in the boys' reformatory, which may actually be less favorable when you think about it. The judgment angers Box Ears, Nick, Pinky, and Dude, and the boys blame someone named Gimpy for Frankie's plight. The boys agree to meet later that evening in an alley near Pinky's house to discuss things. Clark, thanks to his sensitive ears, overhears the boys' conversation and thinks to himself that there's more to the story than it seems. And this marks the first time we've got actual mention of something like superhearing. I said back in episode 1 that it seemed as if Superman used it when he spied on Barrows and Greer, but this is the first time it's actually stated that he used or possessed enhanced hearing. So, later that evening, the disguise of Clark Kent is disposed of, and after smiling for the camera, Superman leaps out the window and heads off to spy on the boys' meeting. Superman does a whole lot of spying on people in these comics. You notice that? Kind of makes you want to rethink that whole so-called super stalker scene in Superman Returns, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, Superman clings to the side of the tenement high above where the boys are meeting and listens in on their conversation. The boys gripe to one another that Gimpy double-crossed them. It seems Gimpy told them that if they sell him stolen stuff, he would protect them should they get caught. But when Frankie got busted, they didn't hear word one out of Gimpy. And all these kids talk like Joe Pesci, so I'm going to save you the bad impression and just play this instead. Is it possible to two youths... Uh, uh, to what? Uh oh, what was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? Did you say youths? Yeah, two youths. What is a ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. Okay, <clears throat> now that that's out of my system, the two youths, er, youths, <laughs> decide to pay Gimpy a visit and fix him. Fix that guy real good. The boys go to the junk shop owned by Gimpy, who, as the narration box so considerately lets us know, is a receiver and fence for stolen goods, loathsome corrupter of youth. He probably kicks puppies as well. I imagine they just ran out of room to put that part in. Anyway, Gimpy is counting his money Scrooge McDuck style when the boys bust in on him. He gives them the business for surprising him, but the boys put the pressure back on Gimpy, pointing out the huge pile of money on the table and demanding to know why, if he has so much money, he didn't bail Frankie out. Gimpy tells them to never mind the money. That's his money and they should forget they ever saw it. He then goes on to tell them that he did promise to help them out, but tries to weasel out by telling them that it's hardly his fault if business got so bad that he couldn't help Frankie. The boys aren't buying any of it and demand Gimpy pay them, even going so far to brandish a conveniently nearby pipe wrench as a bit of encouragement for Gimpy to comply. At the side of the pipe wrench, Gimpy changes his tune and tells them that if they want money, he just so happens to have a job for them that he was just about to get in touch with them on when they showed up. Uh-huh. He hands the boy four slips of paper with addresses on them, detailing places that can be robbed and deliver a big payday. The boys, of course, not questioning that this might be yet another double-cross, take the addresses and leave. 
After the boys are gone, Gimpy sighs a sigh of relief that he was able to fool gullible children. He then says the boys are becoming too much to handle, so he places the call to the police, intent on tipping them off that the robberies are going to occur at the addresses he gave the boys. Unfortunately, for Gimpy anyway, suddenly a hand reaches around and rips the phone off the wall. A stunned Gimpy whirls around to see Superman standing before him. Frightened, he asks who Superman is, and Superman simply replies that he's someone Gimpy is going to wish he never met. Gimpy tries to cry out for help, but Superman shoves him in the face, knocking him to the ground. Gimpy begs for mercy, saying that he'll give Superman anything that he wants. Superman replies that what he wants right now is another chance at Gimpy, then grabs him, flips him upside down, and throws him softball-style across the room, slamming him into the wall. Somehow, Gimpy is still conscious, so Superman grabs him again and says he'll give him one hour to get out of town. Gimpy agrees, then Superman springs and tosses Gimpy headfirst into a nearby barrel of tar. Why was there an open barrel of tar sitting randomly in a junk shop? Your guess is as good as mine. Regardless, with Gimpy taken care of, Superman speeds into the night to catch the boys before the police do. At the estate of Peter Randall, Boxiers climbs over a wall and moves across the grounds, expecting to make a big score. Unfortunately, the police have been tipped off by Gimpy and are already on the scene and spot Boxiers. But before they can grab him, Superman leaps out of nowhere, grabs Boxiers, and leaps off again. The police fire and yell for him to stop, but both have no effect. Boxiers tells Superman to let him go, but Superman says they have to save Nick as well. However, by the time they get to the residence of Harold Bronson, Nick has already been apprehended by police. Carrying Boxiers under his arm once more, Superman chases after the paddy wagon, easily catching up to it. Cut to inside the wagon, and the two officers are suddenly surprised to find that they and the wagon are no longer moving. The officer riding as passenger scowls rather oddly at the driver, wanting to know why he stopped, and the driver replies that he didn't, but in fact has the accelerator pressed to the floor. Meanwhile, behind the van, we learn the real reason why the wagon has suddenly stopped. It seems Superman has grabbed the wagon's rear axle, lifting it off the ground and freezing the wagon in its tracks. While Boxier stammers on in amazement, Superman uses his free hand to tear open the back of the wagon and grab Nick. Moments later, Superman, with both boys under his arm, races through the night on his way to save the other members of Frankie's gang. Elsewhere, Pinky is looting a house of its silverware and lowers the bag out the window, then climbs down himself, right into the waiting arms of Superman. He scolds Pinky for not channeling his energies into more constructive efforts before tossing the bag of silverware back into the house and grabbing all three boys and heading off to yet another house where he finds Dude doing a bit of celebrating after he gets through a set of bars on a window after, quote, hours of work, unquote. Unfortunately, with Superman's appearance, his work was for naught as Superman tells Dude he's coming with him. Superman grabs all four boys and begins once more racing through the night, and Dude asks who he is, if he's a cop, etc. Nick replies that he's not a cop because he made a fool out of them. One of the other boys asks where Superman is taking them, and Superman just replies that they're going back to the tenements. Once back at the housing, Superman tells the boys to pay attention and then preaches on to them about the error of their ways. Well, sort of. I'm not going to read Superman's speech because the text is pretty long, 
but if you really pay attention to what he's telling them, he doesn't actually read them the riot act about stealing and breaking and entering being wrong. Just that stealing for Gimpy is wrong because Gimpy takes most of the profit and leaves them holding the bag with the authorities. The boys have mixed reactions to Superman's speech. Boxers concedes that he does get nervous at times, while Pinky plays the tough and says he's not afraid of the cops. Nick reminds them all that Gimpy says he'd protect them, which is quite a change in tune considering the whole issue it was Nick that was leading the charge to get Gimpy's head on a platter. But Superman scoffs at the idea of Gimpy's protection, asking them if they didn't think it was just a bit odd that the police were waiting on them at the places they were trying to rob. Maybe something like, a trap? The boys start to get the picture, and Superman explains that Gimpy planned to tip off the police, and he would have succeeded had Superman not intervened. And actually, I hate to be nitpicky, but he was successful in tipping off the police, at least for two of the addresses. Superman didn't stymie Gimpy as much as the police when they went to catch the boys. But regardless, the boys put all the pieces together, realizing that that is how Frankie was caught, and once again, few amongst themselves, ready to, to lynch Gimpy. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a shadowy figure bearing a rifle rises up, and after a few angry words to the boys, fires the gun at them. It's Gimpy, tar-free and out for blood against the boys. Superman, who has spotted Gimpy at the exact moment he pulled the trigger, leaps into action, and in a sequence that goes over four panels, but happens in the blink of an eye, Superman uses his amazing speed to outrace the bullet, shoving boxers out of the way and allowing the bullet to bounce off his chest. Superman remarks that it must be the first time in all history that a target has hit the bullet, rather than the other way around. Superman then lunges at Gimpy, grabbing him and tossing him like a football into the nearby river. Nick, who just a minute ago was gunning for Gimpy, uses the fact that Superman is distracted as a prime chance to sneak up behind him and clock him on the skull with a wrench. That just happened to be nearby. I can't think of any reason for the boys to suddenly turn on Superman here, other than we've got four more pages before the story ends. But they do, and naturally it doesn't have much effect on Superman except to make him mad. Superman says he's only got one thing left to do, and that's to teach the boys some respect. He roughly grabs the four of them and leaps to a nearby telephone wire. Superman admits that the treatment is harsh, but it's the only way to teach them. I don't know, Superman. Maybe if you'd spend a bit more time teaching the dangers of stealing, period, rather than just stealing for someone else, things would be easier at this point? <sighs> anyway, with the boys in tow, Superman leaps to a nearby telephone pole, teetering perilously on the suspended wires. The boys are naturally scared out of their wits, mostly afraid the line won't hold under the weight. Superman decides to give it a try and proceeds to do a backflip, landing with ease on the wire. This insanity causes the boys to freak out all the more. Nick says Superman must be nuts, and Pinky, he replies that no, it must be them that are nuts because this kind of thing just can't really be happening. Superman uses his balance to run along the wire before suddenly leaping off of the wire to the sidewalk below, all to the amazement of the boys. Once safe and sound back on the ground, Superman asks how the boys would like to do that again, to which the boys reply, Sure! It was fun! Bemused at their replies, Superman is amazed that the boys actually enjoyed his little bit of torturing. He admires their moxie and says that it's simply too bad they can't channel that into more constructive activities. 
The boys reply that anyone that can do what Superman can is okay in their book, and that they want to be like him, and if being honest is his code, then it's going to be theirs as well. Superman approves of their sudden change of heart, and admits that their delinquent behavior isn't entirely their fault. The poor living conditions, the slums, the tenements are clearly to blame. Superman seems to forget that all these kids have parents, or at least guardians, that clearly aren't watching the kids, but, you know, never mind that. Superman blames the poor living conditions and wishes that there was some way to correct it. Conveniently, a newsboy happens along, selling the latest edition of the paper, which carries news of a destructive cyclone that has hit Florida. Interestingly, looking at real-world history for a minute, in September 1938, a major hurricane struck New England that killed more than 600 people, destroying thousands of homes, and doing billions of dollars in damage. It was a major disaster that still to this date is one of the most destructive hurricanes to have hit that area, and it was bound to have been major news at the time. So, as with the mine collapse story in Action Comics number 3, once again I can't help but wonder if Siegel isn't using real-world news as inspiration in his stories. Anyway, Superman grabs a copy of the paper and finds that hundreds have been left homeless by the storm and that this has caused the government to rush in and rebuild housing. This gives Superman an idea. A superb and glorious inspiration, he says, and begins to give the boys instructions on how to help. A short while later, the boys travel house to house in the slums, delivering a message from Superman. The residents are to grab their valuables and get out of Dodge. After everyone is cleared, thunderous sounds fill the area. People on the outskirts think it might be an earthquake or a hurricane, but they're wrong. It's Superman, tearing down the tenement buildings one by one. He says if the government is going to rebuild disaster areas with cheap rental apartments, then he'll give them a job to do and do away with the city's crime-riddled slums once and for all. Superman's swath of destruction terrifies the inhabitants, or I guess at this point it would be former inhabitants, of the slums who alert the fire departments and police officials. Not willing to believe that one man could cause so much destruction, the police think it must be the work of an unknown army and send for the National Guard. The troops arrive rather quickly and charge onto the scene where they are surprised to find that it is, it is indeed a one-man wrecking crew. They yell for Superman to stop and or they'll be forced to shoot. Superman laughs off the threat and continues tearing down buildings. The soldiers make good on their threat, but Superman evades their attack by a single leap over several blocks, saying that the soldiers mean well, so he has to be careful not to lose his temper and hurt them. Suddenly, a squadron of bomber planes appear out of nowhere with orders to, quote, blast Superman off the face of the earth. And despite being in a major metropolitan area and having absolutely no way of knowing there are no civilians still in the area, the planes begin firing. Superman is still busy tearing down the tenement structures, but spots the planes and begins racing through the streets, avoiding the explosions and fire raining down, letting the bombers do the work for him. Eventually, Superman vanishes, leaving the smoldering ruins of the now-destroyed slum area behind him. And, although it doesn't say, it probably leaves the authorities questioning how wise it was to destroy part of a city to stop someone from... destroying part of a city. Regardless, in the weeks ahead, the ruins of the buildings are cleared, and crews begin building shiny new apartments and making overall improvements to the former slums. Clark Kent interviews Police Chief Burke, who says as far as the paper's readers are concerned, the police will stop at nothing to apprehend Superman, but that, off the record, he's happy with what Superman did and would like to shake his hand. 
To which Clark replies he feels the same way. The end. Superman's actions at the end of the story have become fairly notorious over the years, and this story is quite often held up as sort of a, a poster child example of Superman as the, the bleeding heart liberal. I really don't want to comment too much more on it because it's bound to get political and this ain't that kind of party. But just for some surface comments, you know you're reading a ridiculous comment when Superman destroys part of a city. <sighs> and then the army brings in a squadron of bombers to stop him and ends up destroying the city anyway. <sighs> I'm just not really a fan of this one. Sure, it's got plenty of Superman hijinks, but it really reminds me of the earliest stories we looked at where Superman comes across some morally corrupt individual and proceeds to teach him a lesson via violence, scaring them to death, or just the most bizarre actions imaginable. Speaking of, I'm concerned about exactly what happened to Gimpy. Superman tossed him into the river, we see Gimpy yelling for help, and he's not seen again. Did Superman let him drown? Was he rescued? Did he swim to shore? And if he was rescued or somehow got out by himself, was the threat that he posed really averted? It's a dangling plot point that just seems forgotten. Granted, there's a bit more to this story than we saw in previous ones. It's just a little meatier. Siegel, it seems, is trying to tell a story bigger than the basic morality story of, say, Action Comics number 3. And there's not the bizarre, unconnected side stories that were so problematic in the first issues. But still, this particular story in some ways feels like a step back from the forward progression of the last few issues. But at the same time, it's not all bad. I liked using Clark Kent in the courtroom to start off the story. The opening scene focuses more on the boys and their plight, with Clark really only being a footnote. He's in the courtroom, but it doesn't directly involve him, yet it serves a way, as a way to eventually draw Superman into the story. It's just a different way to start the story rather than Clark or someone at the Daily Star getting a news tip that we've seen in the majority of the stories so far. In fact, Clark, in his job as a reporter, with exception of the interview with the police chief in the last panel, aren't even in this story. No appearance from Lois or the Daily Star, so that's again Siegel throwing in some variety. Also, we again find Siegel progressing the characters in the story. We've seen Superman go from being a complete unknown to the public believing him to be a fictional or urban legend type figure until his most public coming out at the circus last issue. And while this issue finds him still not a household name, he has come onto the radar of more people even to the point of becoming a wanted criminal by the police at the end of the story. And that last bit of Superman being sought by police, it's not something that's mentioned and never talked about again either. Next issue, we'll see a very direct follow-up to that plot point. And I won't say more on it because I don't want to spoil ahead, but it is the focus of next issue's story. One final comment I'll make on the story, and that is that similar to last issue, I get the feeling that the story is a bit rushed, or at least that the pacing is off, because the crux of the action, destroying the tenements and, and the, the slums, it's jammed into the last two pages. The rest is all build up with the courtroom scene, then Superman dealing with Gimpy and the boys. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing in and of itself, 
Siegel is focusing more on the interactions between characters than, okay, what can Superman punch now? But the pacing just could have used a bit of massaging, I think. As for the art, Schuster is okay here. The art seems a bit hurried in some places, and there are several panels where the shield is missing from Superman's chest, but there's a good amount of detail and more consistent backgrounds than in the last two. In the scene at the beginning of the story, where Clark is changing to Superman, you can see Clark Kent's glasses on the dresser in front of him, and that's a nice small detail that could have easily been overlooked. There's also a, a fair amount of detail in the scene where Superman is tearing through the tenements. Actually, the last three pages are all pretty heavy with art and text, but none of them feel overcrowded or impenetrable to the reader, which is a credit to any artist that can pull it off. At the end of the story, we get our third and, I believe, final installment in the Acquiring Super Strength feature. This one clues us in on how to gain supervision, and you can do this in two easy steps. The first is to look at something far in the distance, like, say, a telephone pole. Then look at something very close to you, like, say, a stick. Do this a few minutes every day, and soon you'll be able to peer more distantly than any of your friends. Or go blind from the ice drain, more likely. <laughs> you can see why they likely ended this feature when they did, considering that the tips they give are more likely to cause health problems than health benefits. Plus, the way Superman is going to start doing crazier and crazier stunts after a time, there's no way these strips could feasibly keep pace. The art in this segment is rather funny, however. The figure of the boy is shown twice in the panel, and in the second instance, it looks as if he's gone bald on the back half of his head. Maybe it's more of a coloring issue than an art issue, but it's still pretty funny. On a historical front, the costume, uh, Superman got his red boots back here, thankfully, and the shield is fully back to the inverted solid yellow triangle. There's not even a hint of red anywhere in the shield at all this time out. So, one step forward and one step back, it seems, in that area. This issue is historically notable, though, as I mentioned earlier. It's the first time that we get an actual reference to Superman using his super hearing, even though it's possible he used it as early as his first appearance. It's also interesting to see the big deal Siegel made out of Superman outracing the bullet that Gimpy shot at the boys and what a big deal it might have been. We've seen Superman, you know, dodging bullets and deflecting them off his body, but I believe this is the first time we've ever seen Superman actually be faster than a speeding bullet. Both of these things show the beginning of Superman's power slowly being increased as Siegel and eventually other writers show him doing more amazing and astounding things. Don't expect major changes right away, but over the life of this show, we're going to see how the writer slowly makes Superman more powerful and more powerful until he's flying under his own power, using super hearing and vision powers regularly, surviving nuclear bombs and the like, eventually becoming the familiar yet nigh-invulnerable character of Weisinger's Silver Age. Like the story from last issue, this story has seen two reprints, first in Superman the Action Comics Archives Volume 1, and more recently in Superman Chronicles Volume 1. For the non-reprinted features, this time out we've got Pet Morgan, which gets an increase to six pages in length starting this issue, as well as The Adventures of Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, and Zaytara. 
There's also Scoop Scanlon and Chuck Dawson, which I've mentioned in a prior episode were black and white features. Starting this issue, they remain uncolored, but the gray shading of the artwork gets a red tinting, which, in my opinion, actually detracts from the artwork, but to each his own. There's also a one-page Butch the Pup gag strip, and this was a feature that regularly appeared over in more fun comics, but for some reason this month it appears in action as well. There's a couple more ads in this issue than prior ones, including one offering a special Christmas subscription offer, where you can get a one-year subscription to all four books from Detective, 48 issues in all, for $3.50. (sighs) $3.50. Different times. For those listening to this show years down the road, This episode is coming out, um, well, I'm recording it in February of 2011, and that's a time when the comic book industry, well, the big two, DC and Marvel, are toying with a $3.99 price point for their books. Most independent publishers that aren't the big two have already gone to $3.99, and DC and Marvel both did, in fact, raise several of their books to that level, but have recently pulled back to $2.99, most generally with a cut in pages or dropping of a backup story to accommodate. In fact, DC has recently launched a big promotion uh, holding the line at $2.99 to keep things affordable for you. I think it's inevitable that the books will eventually go to $3.99, but right now they're doing everything they can to keep them at $2.99 and keep the readers happy. That's not commentary, just a bit of historical perspective for future listeners. (laughs) future listeners. I'm picturing a scorched earth future with the sole survivors of the planet. You know, they fish these ancient recordings out of a ravaged command bunker. They travel across the country and through the forbidden zone to find something to play them on. The legendary MP3 player whispered about in the halls of the ancient ones. They think these recordings might hold the answer to life, the universe, and everything. The very key to survival itself. Boy, are they in for a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Yeah, sorry folks. Anyway, other books out this month from Detective Comics, Inc. were More Fun Comics number 39 with a a kind of a cute Christmas-themed cover by Craig Flessel. That book gains a new feature inside titled Sergeant O'Malley of the Redcoat Patrol. I don't know too much about that feature, but it was apparently a group of Canadian Mounties set in you know, then, then uh, contemporary times. Also on the newsstands were Detective Comics number 23 and Adventure Comics number 34. And for those interested in keeping track of such things, which I've kind of been trying to do in this show, Siegel and Schuster are still doing all the features in those books that I've talked about in previous episodes. Radio Squad, Spy, Slam Bradley, and Federal Men, in addition to the Superman strip and Action Comics.
Alright folks, I think that about does it for another episode. Once more, I want to thank Chris Honeywell for his advice on the new headset. Hopefully the improved audio quality will make for a better show all around. Please don't forget to check out some of the many shows in the Two True Freak family. And you can find that again at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. As always, be sure to drop by the website for this show as well at www.greatcrypton.com. There you can leave comments and see show notes and images and links related to the issues discussed on the show. At the site, you'll also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link. If you use iTunes and have time, please leave me an iTunes review. It helps people know the show is worth listening to. There's also the Facebook page. That's still fairly new at this point, but I have been posting updates to it, so you can connect with the show that way to get updates as well. Any and all feedback and comments are welcomed. You can send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com if email is more your thing. Also be sure to visit the Superman Podcast Network at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork for links and updates to not only this show, but many, many more Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. Among them is Cayman Stoll's Superman Video Podcast. I haven't been able to give Cayman proper plugs on this show because he doesn't have an audio promo, but he puts together a great show, folks. Cayman is a huge Superman fan and is always there with the reviews of the latest episodes of Smallville or Young Justice or just general commentary and news on different things of interest to Superman fans. So be sure to check out his show, okay? Alright. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you once more very much for joining me on this episode of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you folks later. Goodbye! thing happened to William and Stanley on their way to college. At what point did you shoot the clerk? They got framed for murder. Whoa! Wait a minute! Now, two kids from New York are in deep trouble. It's time to make your phone calls. The clan's here. They're in bread. They sleep with their sisters. In the deep south. Some of them do. And only one man can save them. You need to call an attorney, a great attorney. He's not your typical hero. We got an attorney in the family. Great, who? He's... My cousin Vinny! You stick out like a sore thumb around here. Oh, yeah, you blend. You graduated from law school six years ago. What have you been doing since? Studying for the bar. That's a lot of studying. What's this over here? You never heard of grits? Sure. I just actually never seen a grit before. It's his first case. Now, they're not telling you dress appropriately. You were serious about that? The way you handled that judge? Oh, you're smooth you are. It's their last chance. The two Utes. Did you say Utes? 
Yeah, two Utes. What is a Ute? But with Vinny's style, I wore this ridiculous thing for you. And Vinny's girlfriend. We agreed to get married as soon as you won your first case. My biological clock is ticking like this. And the way this case is going, I ain't never getting married. They're dead meat. May I have permission to treat Ms. Vito as a hostile witness? Do you think I'm hostile now? Wait till you see me tonight. Joe Pesci is my cousin Vinny. You two know each other? Yeah, she's my fiancé. Well, that certainly explains the hostility.